1: The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I read a fascinating article in the Ottawa Citizen a few days ago about uh, Canada's lack of preparedness for Military Action, uh, written by uh, quite an esteemed gentleman, Andrew Chester, who has joined us tonight. He's president at Juno Risk Solutions. He's been very involved in, uh, in Canadian military and other uh, activities over the course of his uh, career, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, in the article, uh, um, Mr. Chester, you talk about uh, being um, at was it NORAD uh, during 9-11, and, uh, and, and that you were very involved in and what was going on uh, in Canada's response and how impressed you were with uh, the response then, but concerned, I guess, about the lack of uh, our ability to respond uh, effectively today. Anyway, thank you for joining us. And Chester, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation.
1: So let's start with uh, this article. Um, uh, It was really quite interesting. Tell me a little bit about the point that you were making. Um, your, your, Your title was Ukraine war, Canada must equip our forces properly. And your argument was, I guess, that we're not equipped
2: properly today. Is that correct? That was certainly an element of my argument. Um, what I was, uh, what I was really trying to get at is, uh, is there's a need to look at uh, at uh, at how we're responding to the uh, the activity in Ukraine, and uh, and include within the, the overall strategy that the uh, the government is deploying military tools as well. You know, the, the Germans last weekend announced that they were going to increase defense spending up to 2%. The, uh, the polls said they would increase up to 3%. Uh, I could have argued that, uh, that Canada should, uh, should, should do something similar, increase uh, defense spending. But I think the, the stronger argument that I was making was, let's, uh, let's send a message to the Russians that we're serious. And, uh, and one of the key things that we, we could do is, is signal that we're going to buy F-35s. I'm under no illusions that they would arrive this summer, uh, but the message it sends to the Russians is: we stand with our allies. We uh, we're buying the kit that we need to integrate into an allied air force, and uh, and we stand by our defense commitments. Uh, I further went on to say we should uh, we should look at what the army needs as well, rather than just putting 3,500 troops on uh, on alert uh, for possible deployment. We can also message to the Russians that we're preparing for them to actually engage in, the, in conflict in Europe, we stand by our allies. Um, it's, more, con- it's more than just sanctions. You made this comment in the article that you thought
1: that 150 Canadian uh, soldiers were going to be uh, collected from different bases across the country, that we didn't even have a, a unit that was ready to deploy. Is that actually accurate?
2: I can't believe that that's actually true, but that's what was said in the press conference. So uh, uh, a battery of, our, of artillery is about 150 soldiers, uh, uh, four to six guns. We've got uh, artillery regiments across the country. So when the minister said that uh, they are going to draw soldiers from across bases, uh, I, I, was, I was stunned as to, as to why that was the case.
1: Tell us, um, let's just take a step back for a second, a little bit about your experience on 9-11. You were at uh, uh, NORAD um, No, you weren't at NORAD. Uh, You were at uh, NATO headquarters in Norfolk, Virginia, and you were impressed with Canada's response. Tell us a little bit about that just so we can compare.
2: You know, it it was, that was an exciting day. Let me tell you, I was, I was an intelligence officer on the, uh, on the NATO staff at, uh, at what was called SACLET at the time, Supreme Allied Command Atlantic. And there's, at the time there were two major uh, NATO commands, one in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, one in, uh, in Mons in Germany. And, uh, uh, It was amazing how quickly those events unfolded. So if you can imagine a sunny day uh, on on a Tuesday, um, uh, while we were were watching airplanes fly into buildings, about a hundred yards from me, an admiral gave orders to to, uh, sortie the fleet out of uh, Norfolk Harbor uh, with the uh, the orders to shoot down airplanes. Uh, Put your mind around that just for a second. Um, The decision actually emptied the harbor cost about 18 million dollars in gas and he took that in his own accord he then went and he shot uh, 18 destroy- million dollars in gas alone in gas alone and oh uh, and and he took it under his own authority then he took uh, took destroyers and he ran them up uh, to all the major cities along the, uh, the east coast to provide uh, missile defense against incoming uh, jetliners again all on his own authority the same time off of Halifax, uh, I think it was HMCS Halifax, was just uh, on a, another day at sea, went to action stations, went to its uh, war box with exactly the same uh, role, which was to inter- interdict airplanes. We uh, just by luck uh, had a, a frontline Navy that had uh, through the 90s brought in a whole bunch of world class uh, warships and were able to uh, seamlessly start that. When we, uh, when we sent the, uh, the, uh, the task force to sea uh, at, the, at the end of September, um, those ships, all they needed to do was, uh, was fuel up and put, uh, put uh, groceries on board and then go. They were, they were ready. 20 years on, we have the same ships. Um, our aircraft are the same ones. And, and our army is even less uh, well-equipped to be able to operate in a high-intensity theater. These are problems that can get solved. Uh, if the government wants to align its uh, its strategic messaging uh, about the crisis in your, in uh, in Ukraine uh, to include uh, our commitments uh, to to the defense of our allies, we're
1: chatting tonight with Andrew Chester. He is the president at Juno Risk Solutions. He's a uh, former military intelligence officer. Um, he's made a A lot of comments recently in an article that I read in the Ottawa Citizen in regards to Canada's lack of preparedness for any kind of uh, military action. Obviously, something that we've got to be concerned about given what's going on in in Ukraine and Russia today. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more with uh, Mr. Chester in just a minute. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga Night 60. Tonight, we're talking about uh, Canada's military preparedness, or frankly, according to our our guest, Andrew Chester, uh, the president at Juno Risk Solutions, our lack of preparedness. Uh, Mr. Chester's got really quite a illustrious uh, career and background. Let me tell you a little bit about it, if I could. Uh, For the last 11 years, he's been president of Juno Risk Solutions, which is a cybersecurity uh, consulting uh, firm. Uh, Before that, he was executive secretary of the Joint Operational Resilience Management, uh, JORM. Uh, Before that, he was a program manager at Trade Data Corp. Before that, vice president of iJet Intelligent Risk Systems. And before that, for 20 years, he was an intelligence officer with the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, He's got a a law degree at JD from the College of William and Mary Marshall Weiss Law School. He's got a, a master's in international affairs from the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and uh, he's uh, uh, got a BA in uh, Strategic Studies from RMC College, uh, I presume, in uh, Kingston, uh, Ontario. Uh, quite the, uh, the background, sir. Um, tell me, if you could, just before we get back into the, uh, the topic, um, why did you choose to join the Navy?
2: Well, that's, a, that's a really good question. Uh, Dad was in the Air Force. My brother was an F-18 pilot. Um, I just assumed everyone did.
1: And RMC, good experience.
2: Uh, uh, RMC was a was a terrific experience. You know, you yeah, you, you took a kid who did not, uh, you know, have much interest in studying, despite the uh, the long list of degrees you just ro- uh, wrote off. Uh, wanted to join the navy and uh, and uh, uh, put me in an environment which forced me to uh, to excel academically and, and to learn other things. Military college was, was a was a terrific experience for me and. Uh, and, uh, a good, good, good way for any, any kid to, uh, to advance out of small town Ontario.
1: And then 20 years in the Navy and now almost 20 years in, uh, in private uh, sector, um, give us a little bit of a comparison between 20 years in the Navy and 20 years in the private sector.
2: You know, it's, uh, it's funny. I, uh, I love the time that I spent as an intelligence officer in the Navy, uh, but, uh, I, I was more entrepreneurial and uh, and bu- uh, bureaucracy I found to be a, a challenge to live inside uh, I, I found myself after 20 years not with uh, with what I described as no marketable skills so uh, I, I went and became a lawyer um, and uh, with with not the, the real desire to practice law necessarily but to change my way of thinking learn learn some new tools um, uh, when when uh, when I was in government, I don't think I ever used the word value once in a sentence. Uh, in, in private practice, you that animates all decisions. So, um, uh, how do you uh, how do you uh, how do you describe an issue uh, of, of concern to an organization? Have them invest money in order to reduce risk. I, I find that to be an absolutely fascinating uh, fascinating uh, line of work, and uh, and uh, I managed to build myself a team of people equally you know share that passion. Okay, so let's take that uh,
1: idea of value and apply it to your uh, recommendation on jets. I understand that fighter jets have been something that uh, the Harper government debated, the Trudeau government's debated. It seems like it's something we've been debating for 20 years as to what to do uh, with the jets. Remind us, uh, it's uh, CF-18s that we have currently, and you're recommending F-35s. Tell us about what we have as a fighter jet uh, 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 system today.
2: Sure. So uh... We, uh, we, we signed a deal to buy, uh, to buy uh, uh, CF-18s in about 1982. Uh, we, uh, we picked them up through the, uh, the course of the 80s and uh, we're still flying them today. They're old aircraft. Um, they, uh, they need to get replaced. There was a variety of different options that were available to the government uh, uh, when we went to market. We've been a part of the F-35 uh, uh, program uh, since the 90s in so much as uh, we, uh, we had uh, uh, officers on exchange in the States working on them, we were investing money in them. Um, that, that aircraft is fundamentally different than anything that we're flying right now. It's uh, not only is it a, is a fighter jet, but it also is, is, uh, is part of a, uh, a network of, uh, of sensors that contributes to, uh, to uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. So there's a lot of punch that comes out with, uh, with that aircraft. But I think from the perspective of, uh, of the issue right now in Ukraine, uh, that's what our allies are flying. Uh, that's essentially going to become the aircraft of choice for not only the NATO alliance, but, uh, but our allies in, in Asia as well. Um, the other aircraft they're looking at is, is a Swedish aircraft, which doesn't have the same capabilities, uh, may have better defense offsets in, in Canada. I'm not well familiar with that. But if the objective is to order our air force into uh, harm's way, uh, then it would be made by this government. And, uh, and the argument I, I, I made is that government should equip them with the best aircraft to do that job and to most effectively deter uh, the Russians. It's a relatively easy choice at this point.
1: I, I think you know all of us know how much technology has Im- improved, changed uh... Uh, accelerated in the last 40 years you're saying we've got 40 year old technology right now
2: the the airframes themselves are 40 years old they've been updated the software has been updated weapon systems have been updated but they're 40 year old aircraft
1: and uh, the, uh, the the recommendation that you're making is uh, what is sort of the the
2: current uh, state of the art in fighter jets it's the state of the art in fighter jets right now uh, it's uh, it is a um, it's a much more capable aircraft um uh, the uh, the advantage uh, uh, that uh, that we have is uh, is it it fits in in the in the norad role well because that's what the americans are flying as well it fits in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, the nato role as well our allies are 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 moving predominantly to that aircraft so that's a good fit and you use the word value what's the cost of these uh stunningly expensive so if you would have saw me a year ago, I, I would have been saying that we should be looking at, uh, at other aircraft uh, types, but, uh, but not now. We're in a different strategic situation. And, uh, and that's what I think uh, the country itself has to be thinking about.
1: How expensive is stunningly expensive?
2: Oh I, I you know, th- these numbers are, are these numbers are, are are flexible you look at the total life cycle cost of uh, of uh, of the aircraft and but we're in the neighborhood I think of somewhere around 60 billion dollars that number's wrong but it's close for one aircraft or for for the for the uh, for the fleet of aircraft and, and how many, many are in a fleet whole- and the and the full life cycle uh, uh, cost. See, this is this is the challenge. If you actually look at the the aircraft, I don't know what, what the number is. It's two or five hundred million dollars, depending on how you want to uh, want to uh, uh, capture it. But when you look at, at what the program will cost, that program is the, the cost of buying them, maintaining them, building the infrastructure at bases for them, whole stacks of cases. So, so that uh, the uh, that's how the number gets as high as, as you see. But even you know somewhere between two and five hundred million dollars in aircraft—that's pricey. And how many are in a fleet? Uh, well, you want to look at a squadron. So uh, a squadron is probably a dozen to fifteen aircraft. So uh, 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 we would uh, we would not be looking at very many squadrons to in buy initially. Kind of a shocking uh, set of numbers, but I think you're right that uh, we clearly have to
1: upgrade from something that's forty years old. Uh, let me ask you a different question though. You know, we've been talking a lot in the last, uh, God, it seems like a long time, but it's only been like 10 days about, uh, um, donations of lethal weapons. What is our inventory of capacity for donation of lethal weapons? Do we have much,
2: you know, that's a really excellent question. Um, and uh, had you spoken to me last weekend, uh, uh, that was right after Zelensky uh, made his statement, uh, you know, I uh, I need ammunition, not a ride. Which will go down in the annals of military history, along alongside statements like "Damn the torpedoes." He said that on a Saturday. On Sunday, uh, Minister Jolie, Minister Adnan, announced uh, twenty five million dollars of non lethal aid, and you would have found me on the couch grousing about that. Wednesday, um, uh, they came up and announced uh, 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 the uh, the uh, the sending of rockets. Hand grenades and the, and 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 other things, and it was clear to me that the government uh, was was being pretty nimble um, over at Defense Headquarters. I'm certain they were opening the cupboards and saying, "What do we got that we don't need this winter that we can send?" And uh, and uh, the cupboards not that full, uh, but we're uh, we we seem to be emptying it out of whatever we can uh, we can uh, we can part with. Well, if, if we,
1: for probably valid reasons, not wanting to start World War III, need to keep our own um, military personnel out of direct combat with, uh, with Russia, we've got to give the armaments to Ukraine, don't we? Or, or we're just going to let them walk through it like Hitler did Czechoslovakia? Yeah, uh,
2: that's a complicated question. Um, what we're seeing right now is, uh, in, in Ukraine is, a, uh, uh, is the makings of a prolonged battle. So uh, the the initial Russian plan seemed to have been uh, to to move forward, occupy cities and 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 have Ukraine collapse. That didn't occur. Uh, What we're seeing now is the uh, is the Russians uh, uh, shifting to its roots uh, of the Red Army, which is a very uh, artillery heavy uh, type of combat. So laying siege to cities in the hopes of breaking the will of the Ukrainians. that may or may not uh, occur. Uh, one would think it probably uh, will not succeed in breaking the will of the Ukrainians. So we'll probably see a prolonged siege take place in, the, in, the, uh, in Ukraine. That's gonna have NATO countries continuing to, uh, to supply arms um, uh, through uh, its 2,500 mile border uh, around, around Ukraine which uh, is gonna make us very close to, uh, to the conflict with, with Russia. So much like the sanctions uh, are having a, a significant uh, pain on the, uh, on the Russian economy, the, uh, the, uh, the, the provision of non-lethal aid, or sorry, the provision of lethal aid, weapons from NATO countries into Ukraine is likely gonna stimulate a reaction from the Russians. That's my concern. What, what do you think the reaction is? Um, I think, uh, I think that, uh, the most likely reaction is going to be cyber attacks, uh, against critical infrastructure in NATO countries. I understand, uh, that, you know, there's this group
1: anonymous, uh, that have been attacking, uh, from a cyber standpoint, Russia, um, that, uh, maybe some, uh, military, uh, forces in, uh, in NATO have been doing the same. Uh, and, uh, and I uh, spoke just uh, Thursday night with uh, some cybersecurity uh, executives, uh, Ukrainian-Canadian cybersecurity executives that are uh, very actively involved in similar kinds of, uh, of uh, activities. Uh, is that going to have any countervailing impact?
2: Uh, by that, do you mean, uh, do you think that's going to have an impact on Canada?
1: No, is that going to have an impact? Well, frankly, both are good, but is it, is it going to have an impact on Russia? And then what's the impact on Canada?
2: You know, I, uh, cyber attacks against Russia will likely result in, 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 a, in, uh, in a similar response by Russia against, uh, against uh, uh, those countries that are aligned against it. No escalation there. Uh, if in fact uh, the the battle on the on the grounds of Ukraine continues to go poorly for the Russians, if the economic sanctions have a uh, uh, continue to have an impact upon uh, upon the ability of uh, of uh, Putin to uh, maintain a stable country, he may choose to escalate, uh, and uh, and by escalation uh, he could actually engage in uh, in cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, which are not. Disruptive in nature. We're, we're used to disruptive cyber attacks. We're used to uh, to, uh, to cyber attacks that lead to data breaches. Uh, but what we haven't seen uh, in North America in any great st- great extent has been destructive cyber attacks. That that which is designed to uh, to destroy electricity grids or to, to destroy uh, uh, financial uh, infrastructure. That's my concern if escalation takes place. And this is quite a different environment than, uh, than we, we've ever faced before as a country.
1: Don't you think that Putin has to be very careful to not bring NATO
2: into the war? Um, some would argue that NATO's already in the war. So if, uh, if uh, we have uh, uh, Poland and other countries sending fighter jets over to the Ukrainian Air Force to, uh, to engage in combat, Uh, These are these are uh, uh, NATO fighter jets with NATO weapons that are now uh, being flown by Ukrainians against Russians. Um, Some would argue we're already engaged. We're not fighting, but we're definitely supplying.
1: Okay, but, you know, go back to your history and World War II. The United States uh, stayed out of out of uh, direct combat for a long time uh, by giving Russia and uh, and Britain land lease. And uh, so lots of armaments, uh, lots of training, but never actually manned until uh until after Pearl Harbor
2: that's not actually true um uh, back in uh, back in uh, in 1941 in the uh, battle of the atlantic um uh us uh, us uh, warships were actually escorting um uh, uh allied convoys and uh, were engaged in combat against uh, against u uh, boats um uh, this this took place you know, over half a year before Pearl Harbor, and it was a, it was a, uh, it was a secret operation, uh, but it was designed to to support uh, an ally that was uh, that was uh, under threat. The analogy is not that uh, far off of what we're looking at right now.
1: Really fascinating. We're chatting tonight with Andrew Chester. He is the president at Juno Risk Solutions. He uh, spent 20 years as a intelligence officer with uh, the Royal Canadian Navy. Um, we're going to take a break. For some messages and come back more with Mr. Chester in just a minute. Stay with us, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crumbie Radio. While we're on Saga 960, my guest tonight is Andrew Chester. He's the president at Juno Risk Solutions. He wrote an article uh, just last week in the Ottawa Citizen um, about the Ukrainian uh, war, and his uh, his argument was that Canada must equip our forces properly. And he's talked about uh, about a lot of the things that we have not been doing to properly equip our uh, forces, Mister. Um, uh, Chester spent 20 years with the Royal Canadian Navy as an intelligence officer, and in the last 20 years in private uh, business in a lot of uh, uh, very similar uh, businesses associated with risk and, uh, and intelligence and cybersecurity and things like that. Uh, Mr. Chester, you were saying that you thought that there's some issues in critical infrastructure in Canada that we need to put our minds to uh, right now. What do you mean by that?
2: You know. I- I, I think uh, if you're going to look at the, the conflict in Ukraine, you can't just isolate it to that piece of geography. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, if you, if you. Okay, round two, name something that's not
0: boring.
1: A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire,
2: huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.
2: Put your mind back to the Second World War, and uh, I used to I used to read about uh, about the, uh, the RAF Bomber Command and the and the US 8th Air Force, which would go over and bomb Germany, and uh, and it took me a long time to realize that they actually weren't bombing Germany, uh, they're actually bombing uh, aircraft aircraft production plants. They're bombing Heinkel and Messerschmitt and and BMW, uh, so bombing companies. And uh, in response, uh, in response to that, you know, the the Germans organized searchlights and, and fighter planes and flak guns to defend that industrial production. Um, uh, we in North America didn't face that. There were you know precious few uh, German saboteurs that were looking to to disrupt our infrastructure, bring the war to uh, to to, uh, uh, to North America. You know, fast forward to today. And the uh, the risk now is that uh, uh, through the ability to engage in destructive or disruptive cyber attacks, um, our adversaries now have the ability to uh, to make uh, Canada part of the uh, part of the battlefield if they so choose. So there's a, there's a, there's considerable risk uh, to Canadian uh, critical infrastructure uh, should the Russians choose to uh, to broaden the war beyond just the confines of, uh, of, of Ukraine and include, uh, include those countries, which are supporting it.
1: So what do we need to do?
2: Um, well, prudently the same things that we, uh, we have been doing, but with a much, a much greater focus. Uh, we do know that, uh, that, uh, the government is, uh, has collaborated with some elements of critical infrastructure to share intelligence about, uh, uh about, uh, nation states that, uh, that have been involved in, uh, in, uh, in targeting Canadian critical infrastructure. The electricity sector is well engaged in, in these issues. Uh, the, uh, the financial sector is well engaged in this telecommunica- telecommunications as well. Um, what uh, uh, what I've been advising my clients to do is think about you know, losing power for, for an extended period of time. What's that going to do to your organization? Uh, if you lost the internet, for an extended period of time, what's that going to do to uh, to uh, your ability to uh, to continue to function? These are not theoretical questions, as they were several years ago. Uh, these are front and center questions because if, in fact, uh, there's a uh, desire from uh, from Russia to make the pain of this conflict felt by those countries that are uh, that are supporting with arms and the, and the, and and others support uh, uh, Ukrainians, or are killing Russian soldiers. We could feel that pain here.
1: Well, you know, they, I just heard someone on the radio this morning talking about uh, this uh, nuclear power plant in Ukraine that was uh, attacked by the Russians, and it, it, it appears to be in Russian control right now. But that it supplies forty percent of uh, Ukraine' electrical needs, and so very critically, they can turn the lights off.
2: Absolutely. And uh, in fact, uh, the, uh, the Russians have, actually, uh, have used cyber attacks to turn their lights off in, uh, in Ukraine before. They did that in 2014. So I'm not talking in the theoretical here. This is, this is, uh, this is a key part of the Russian way of, of warfare. But you know, let's put a Canadian lens on this again. Um, uh, uh, last Monday, we, uh, we announced that, uh, that, uh, that Canada would no longer buy any more Russian oil, period. Other countries are doing the same thing. So uh, uh, you know, if the, uh, the reduction uh, in, the, in markets for Russian oil uh, makes Canadian exports look all that more attractive, um, uh, that could be viewed as a net gain uh, by, by the opposing side. Disruptions against the, uh, the oil patch in, in uh, Alberta would strike me to be a logical uh, step to try and uh, reduce, the, uh, reduce the supply even more and, and make, uh, make Russian oil all that more interesting.
1: So you're saying that uh, Canadian oil and gas companies have to be very careful about uh, cyber attacks right now.
2: I think all Canadian critical infrastructure, infrastructure needs to be concerned about this.
1: Well, you know, we can see a couple of trucks can close down the Ambassador Bridge. So it's pretty easy to, to mess things up.
2: You know, that's a, that actually is a very good uh, analogy to use. Uh, it doesn't take much to mess things up and, uh, and, and, uh, 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 a, uh, if you lose a a, a a a transformer in the power grid, uh, then you know one element of uh, of the, the grid is going to go down until you uh, until you replace that transformer. There's a couple in in the in the in, in the supply chain that can be moved relatively quickly, but typically it takes about three months to generate a new transformer. If you lose 600 transformers, well, good luck trying to uh, do uh, uh, replace that anytime uh, anytime soon.
1: But you're not worried about actual Bombing of critical infrastructure. You're worried about cyber attack, cyber attacks to critical infrastructure.
2: Absolutely, I'm not concerned about kinetic at all. I'm, I'm much more concerned about uh, about cyber. And we know that these these uh, uh, these industries have, uh, have been mapped uh, for uh, for military purposes over the last several decades. So this is a this is a concern that I'm certain that the the, the government is animated with. Uh, I, I know many of my clients are, are, are focused in on this as a, as, a, as a matter of some priority. And, uh, and uh, understanding how this could manifest itself and ensuring that the right uh, controls are in place against that nature of threats, critically important these days. Well, I guess a logical question then uh,
1: has to be Huawei. Uh, uh, so I've had some people on my show that uh, suggest that if uh, we allow... Ukraine to fall—that's um, effectively giving an open invitation to China to take over uh, Taiwan—and uh, uh, and that the most important thing we can do from uh, restricting Chinese knowledge about what's going on in Canada is—is uh, is, uh, restrict, if not uh, ban, Huawei from providing five G. How do you uh, feel about that issue?
2: You know, it's a—that's a—that's a really challenging question because there's a. Uh, the, the the Chinese are leaders in in five so There's not a lot of other options that are available to that. Uh, of our of our uh, five five eyes allies, we, we seem to be uh, standing outside of the uh, the uh, the, um, the the group with regards to uh, to decision on Huawei. Um, but uh, it is a uh, uh, it's it's a, it is a, a question which uh, which we need to be asking ourselves. Uh, in, uh, in a uh, almost a geostrategic sense. Uh, my concern in, in Europe is that uh, uh, the Russians, uh, uh, upon concluding with Ukraine this year, may, uh, may, uh, may move forward to do what, uh, what uh, Putin really wants, which is to, uh, to, uh, to destroy the NATO alliance. So uh, uh, picking off a NATO country, and, uh, uh, which doesn't lead to a, an Article 5 response, would essentially collapse the uh, the alliance structure in Europe, but equally would would uh, would collapse the overall alliance structure around the world. Um, your question is about Chinese technology. Um, I think we're uh, it, it's a broader question of a, of an entirely disrupted international environment. So
1: my uncle was a uh, U.S. Uh, naval intelligence officer during the Korean War, and uh, he firmly believed in this domino theory that if you allowed Vietnam or uh, South Korea to go, that it would uh, um, start the march of communism around the world. Are you suggesting that, you know, we just cannot let Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland be attacked by Russia or NATO's done?
2: We absolutely cannot allow uh, a NATO country to be attacked that doesn't have a response. So that's, uh, that's where I, uh, I, I see the, uh, the government in a position to, to strategically message that that's important. So beyond, beyond F-35s, we should be preparing uh, uh, we should be preparing to put a brigade back into, into Europe uh, into one of the Baltic countries to, to augment uh, the, uh, the battle group that we already command, to message very clearly that we are part of the, the alliance and that we are going to stand by, uh, stand by our, uh, our, our commitments. The uh, this is a this is a really critical moment and I'm not uh, I'm not advocating that uh, that uh, what we're facing is is a broader war. I think the steps that we take now um, uh, could go a long way towards containing what could otherwise be a very serious, uh, serious escalation in conflict. So you're a student of
1: uh, military history. Is this Czechoslovakia, Austria, or is this the attack on Poland on September 1st, 1939?
2: You know, that's a that's a really good question. People have been uh, been uh, been uh, uh, trying to to pull out their their analogies. Uh, probably one of the most interesting things I read this week uh, was uh, was an interview with a lady named Fiona Hill. Uh, you may remember she testified against uh, Trump uh, during one of his impeachment hearings, but she's a leading uh, Russian expert, uh, wrote apparently one of the best biographies on, on Putin. And about two thirds of the way through the uh, the interview, and, and and this is the point that has been picked up by many commentators. She was asked the question, you know, do you think that this could lead to to uh, the third world war? And her response was, "We've been in the third world war for some time. People just haven't recognized it." And she walked her way back down to uh, to uh, to 2014 uh, Crimea and and Donbas. So um, what's the what's the analogy? You know, it. Uh, uh, are we are we at a point where uh, where uh, uh, poland is attacked and we must must respond by uh, by declaring war probably not are we at a point where uh, where we have to stand firm and make it clear that uh, that uh, uh, you can't succeed and uh, and uh, to allow you to succeed uh, uh, puts at jeopardy all that we stand for absolutely
1: should we institute a no-fly zone above Ukraine?
2: No, uh, that's a good, complicated question. Uh, short answer, let me explain. Um, the, the, uh, the Russians have not committed their air force uh, and nobody can quite understand why. Um, you, can, you can pull up your Twitter feed each morning, watch, uh, watch colorful videos of, uh, of uh, Russian helicopters uh, uh, being shot down by Stinger missiles. The bigger issue is artillery tubes. And uh, the Russians are very heavy in artillery and that's what they're gonna to use to lay siege to cities. So you can, you can install all the no-fly zone you want and that really is effectively putting NATO countries uh, at war with Russia. Uh, it's not gonna change the fact that the, uh, the artillery is gonna be able to, uh, to lay siege to the cities and, uh, and uh, uh, force the capitulation of, uh, of, uh, of the Ukrainians in the, in the, in the Russian mind. So unless you're uh, unless you're also going to uh, to uh, put steps in place to destroy that, you're not going to have the impact that you want.
1: Couldn't uh, NATO, in you know, one swift action with uh, bombers and fighter jets, destroy all these uh, artillery units and convoys that are headed toward Kiev?
2: Not uh, not a one, one, uh, uh, one swift action. That would take uh, that would take uh, uh, days and weeks of uh, of prolonged strikes. But then you're at war, and, uh, and uh, uh, then you're fully committed against, uh, against an army that has got uh, direct lines of communications to its, uh, to its overall industrial capacity inside Russia. That's a huge step.
1: at the Russian border and in Ukraine right now. Does NATO have anywhere close to that?
2: You know, it's, um, it's funny. I've, I've been chatting with, uh, chatting with my friends uh, all with gray hair uh, of, of the days that we, uh, we thought seriously about this back in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, uh, we have, uh, in the West, uh, have uh, effectively disarmed our conventional capabilities. Russians actually have got a, a much, much smaller army as well. So back in the back in the uh, in the 80s, the uh, the the thought in NATO was uh, we don't have conventional superiority, so we'll use nuclear weapons in order to to counter the much larger numbers in Russia. The Russians don't actually have enough soldiers to to occupy uh, Ukraine, a country of 44 million people in, in a massive uh, uh, land uh, uh, land mass. So. Uh, we're both in the same situation that we that we lack the sufficient conventional capabilities to uh, to engage in large scale uh uh conventional war um that uh that that raises the uh, the issue of uh, nuclear threshold um uh, the uh, the the russian military doctrine allows for the use of, uh, of tactical nuclear weapons uh in a much more permissive fashion than our view in, in north america uh, so it's a uh, it's a, a very frightful time.
1: Supposedly Putin put uh, the nuclear forces on standby uh, or heightened alert or something like that last weekend. Do you think there's actually a risk?
2: I think there's absolutely a risk. Um, uh, you, ask, uh, you ask people, what does that mean? And, and nobody frankly really knows what it means. Um, uh, there's not a lot known about, uh, about uh, the command and control of, of Russian nuclear forces. Uh, When I was studying at the Royal Military College, I could I could uh, I could uh, describe chapter and verse uh, the 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 uh, command authorities for uh, for Western nuclear forces. We just don't know how it works in the in in Russia. So uh, if uh, uh, if that alert, which I uh, I uh, I listened to with some degree of alarm last weekend, if that means that uh, they're just uh, uh, putting more uh, more staff at the readiness. That's one thing. If that means that they're, uh, they're, uh, they're putting their submarines at, uh, to sea in greater numbers uh, for increased survivability, that's something else. But again, no one really quite knows. When
1: um, former President Trump uh, was uh, in charge in the United States, I think some of us hoped that there were other people that were maybe a little bit saner that could have stopped him from doing something uh, crazy. Can Putin start this all on his own? Can Putin trigger a nuclear attack all on his own? Or is there some process, some other
2: people he's got to get on side? Again, I don't know. Uh, we, we don't have a good window into who makes those decisions or how they're made. It was interesting after the, uh, the, the 2020 election, the, uh, the, uh, there's been uh, in the United States, there was lots of commentary about uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, trying to calm uh, the Chinese about uh, uh, potential use of Russian, uh, sorry, American nuclear forces. But interestingly, he, 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 he made a very clear argument that in the United States um, um, you cannot follow an unlawful order. And the message he was trying to signal was if, uh, if even the president made, a, uh, made an order to, uh, to launch nuclear weapons, if the military chain of command deemed that to be unlawful, they, they by law couldn't follow it. I don't know if there's anything that's comparable to that in the, uh, in the Russian uh, uh, calculus, but I think we're, we're I seriously still... doubt it. Well, you know, I, I seriously doubt it as well. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, um, you know, this is the lawyer in me coming out and, 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 and trying to explain how, uh, how uh, how strategy is employed. I think we're a ways away from seriously being concerned about that, but I don't take any of that off the table.
1: We're chatting tonight with Andrew Chester. He is a military expert. Uh, He's president of uh, Juno Risk Solutions, which is a cybersecurity risk-oriented company. Um, And uh, he's uh, spent 20 years in the Canadian Navy. He uh, spent 20 years in private uh, sector businesses, all focused on uh, on risk and, uh, and intelligence. He's written recently an article in the uh, Ottawa Citizen about Canada's lack of uh, military preparedness. Uh, and we've been chatting with that. We're gonna take a break and come back with some concluding comments in just a minute. Stay with us, everybody. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. My guest tonight is Andrew Chester. He is the president at Juno Risk Solutions. Um, he uh, has got really quite an illustrious uh, career. He spent 20 years uh, as a as an intelligence officer with the Royal Canadian Navy after graduating from uh, RMC um, and the Norman Patterson School of, uh, of International Affairs. Uh, then he went back uh, and got a, a law degree, and then he spent 20 years in numerous different companies that uh, appear to be very associated with cyber uh, um, risk uh, cyber intelligence and uh, and risk reduction uh, with uh, IJet intelligent risk systems trade bytes datacorp joint operational resilience management and Juno risk solutions for the last uh, 12 years um, mr. Chester who's in charge in the Canadian Army right now
2: uh, well it's uh, it uh, it's run uh, we're, we're run by a a, a a civilian line of authority. So it starts with the minister, Minister Anand, and uh, below that, uh, General Wayne Eyre.
1: If you were General Wayne Eyre right now, what would you be doing? What would you be saying to your uh, civilian uh, minister?
2: I'd be advising the minister that we need to prepare for engagement in, in high-intensity operations in Europe, uh, and that should be a, a strategic tool in the, in the government's quiver, uh to uh to apply in, in its overall strategy to counter russian aggression
1: the prime minister is on his way to uh london to meet with uh, the prime minister of uh of uh the uk and uh, the head of uh, the netherlands and and supposedly it's because uh the three of us have been um of one mind in our actions and then he's off to latvia tell me what you think the prime minister should do with his allies and what should he do in latvia
2: uh, in Latvia, we've got, uh, we've got a battle group of soldiers. He should tell them that they're supported and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, they, uh, they will not be alone in, uh, in, in facing, uh, facing the Russians to our allies. He's got to say that, uh, we're there, uh, regardless of what the need is. And we recognize just the gravity of the situation that uh, the world's facing right now.
1: Um, who is the lady that, uh, was asked about World War Three in the United
2: States. Her name was Fiona Hill. She's a, a a Russian specialist.
1: If I asked you, are we going to be in World War Three, like Fiona Hill was asked? What would you respond? Uh,
2: if uh, if by World War Three you mean the a clash of all arms, nuclear, conventional, and uh, and uh, and and cyber, with uh, with great countries uh, crashing into each other all across a battlefield. Uh, I'm hoping we're not going to get there. Are we in a clash with, uh, with, a, uh, with an aggressive nation that has to be stopped? Absolutely, we're there now. And the only question is, can it be contained and how can we uh, ensure that it, uh, it doesn't affect more the, more countries and more people than, uh, than it is already?
1: I take it from your description of her response that uh, she start, she thought we started World War III in 2014, or, or something like that, maybe even early in 20 2008. Do you agree? Did has World War Three, to a certain extent, has this clash of civilizations effectively already started?
2: There's a uh, there's disruption in the international order. Uh, there's uh, there's things that are shaking about all around. So what we're uh, what we're seeing in uh, what we're seeing in uh, in, uh, in in uh, in China. Uh, in Asia is is an ascendant China that's uh, that's challenging a a series of of connections that have uh, have relied upon the United States, largely since the end of the Second World War. That's disrupting. Uh, What we're seeing in uh, in Europe is uh, is real challenges to to the institutions that held that together uh, again, since the Second World War. Removal of Britain from uh, the European Union, the challenges within the, within, the, within the European Union to uh, to, uh, to to stay solid, uh, a land war in Asia or sorry in, in Europe uh, that uh, that uh, is attacking one of the, the the core countries, which is a uh, which is uh, has borders against all of the the core NATO uh, NATO uh, countries. We're seeing right now a disruption in the overall international order. To to call this World War III, I think, is uh, alarming. Rather, you should be looking at this in the context of a disruption in in a pattern of international relations that has held the world safe uh, for the last 70 years. That's really concerning. It should be concerning to all of us. And uh, I don't think we can escape it here.
1: So I want to thank uh,
2: our guest, uh, uh,
1: Andrew Chester, president at Juno Risk Solutions, for joining us today and raising our... uh, our attention to this issue of uh, critical infrastructure in Canada, um, our lack of preparedness in Canada, and the concerns about what's going on. And let me finish uh, with uh, with my own personal point of view, if I could. I don't think that this is uh, World War III yet. Um, I don't think this is comparable to uh, the Nazi Germany attack on September 1st of 1939 on Poland. But I do think this is akin to, uh, to going into uh, Czechoslovakia. And, uh, we cannot be Neville Chamberlain. Uh, we cannot be appeasers. And uh, if we haven't learned that appeasement doesn't work, um, we're going to have to learn it again. And I fear that the next step, maybe if we allow Putin to take Ukraine, either a repeat of an attack into Poland or to Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia. Um, and, uh, each one of those countries, particularly the Baltic states, have reasonably sizable Russian-speaking minorities. And so for his own propaganda purposes in Russia himself, he can use the argument about uh, about protecting those Russian-speaking minorities. Um, and I think just like Chamberlain needed to stand up more strongly to Hitler um, when, uh, when he moved into first Austria and then Czechoslovakia, we do need to stand up stronger um, and say that this is just unacceptable. Um, And if not, I worry that uh, Fiona Hill's uh, predictions or or concerns might come uh, to pass. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us, sir. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's our show for tonight. I'm on every Monday through Friday at 6 o'clock on 960 AM. You can stream me online at www.saga960am.ca. Good night, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.